Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. We're glad you're able to join us on this Tuesday afternoon. And um, we have an excellent crew this morning, as we always, this afternoon, as we have every week, an excellent crew. And this very interesting topic that we're talking today. Jeff, good to see you today. You were away. Good afternoon. I've been away for a couple of weeks, but we all, I think, did this, we, did we go a couple of weeks without having this webcast? Uh, we went one week without the Tuesday webcast. We went two weeks without the Wednesday webcast. Okay. Which is why I feel like it's been a while since we've been around. Oh. Uh, let's see. We have Stephen. Stephen, are you with us here today? I am, Drew. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. I think I'll stop sharing the screen so I can see all of you guys. There we go. Hi there. Yeah, now I can see. And Jonathan, glad to have you with us today. Yeah, it's good to see you guys today. So if you're coming in on the Zoom app, we encourage you to ask questions uh, using the Q&A uh, button. Click on the Q&A button, up optional window. You can type away or click on the, hot, the hand icon. And that'll let us know that you'd like to come in using your audio. And we encourage you to do that. We're still having a race with the Wednesday program. So who's going to come in first on using audio? We haven't gotten anyone yet. But if you're coming in on the yeah, the little competition between Jeff, Jeff and myself. Yeah, so they, they shot they, the starting gun went off and we're still in our starting stances. <laughs> exactly. No. So come on, you guys on Tuesday. Come on in and let's uh, let's hear some comments on our on your audio. Um, okay, and the other way that we're broadcasting live today is also on um, Scott Smelter's Facebook page. He's not with us today. He's on vacation, but we are still broadcasting live through his page. So if you're watching or listening through there, give us your comments and feedback. And realize that Facebook does have about a 20-second delay uh, once you type something in and we see it. It's a 20-second delay before we set talk about it. With that said, we're going to be talking about influence. And uh, Stephen, you're going to start us off with this influence topic. Sure. Yeah. Uh, this is something that um, if you follow news, you may have seen some articles that have come out in the past week about a guy named Joshua Harris, who famously wrote a book called "I Kiss Dating Goodbye," which came wow. out. What a time! Um, yeah, uh, and it, it uh, sold about a million copies and made a, a big influence on the, uh, I don't know, the kind of Christian culture. And um, So what was the gist of the book? Before we get to the news of uh, recent days, what was, what was the gist of the book? The gist of the book is essentially that uh, dating – and at least in American culture has become largely sexualized and uh, we need to kind of reject that model of dating, uh, kiss it goodbye, so to speak, and need to have a more biblically based model for our relationships, which you made a lot of good points in the book. Uh, I've read parts of it and have appreciated what I've read from that. Now the news is that um, before you go on to the news. So this is, this is just a little bit interesting because one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I'm over 60 now, and, and Libby and I uh, hear people talk about whether they're dating or not, and, and it seems to mean something different than it used to mean. And I remember when one of our daughters, who had been seeing a young man for some time, spending a lot of time with him, um, talking about getting married, um, going to places together and all of this, but she was insisting to him that 
she was not dating because she was not yet allowed to date, or at least that's what she thought. So dating has come to mean different things to different people. But this book, apparently, from what you're saying, it's not so much about dating in quotes as it is about how to behave with someone that you might have a romantic interest in before you're married. Is, would that be fair? Yeah, I think so. Now, I think some people took it the first way you described that, uh, like dating in and of itself is wrong. And unfortunately, what ended up happening is there were some ideas that were in the book, but got kind of carried farther than I think the, the author intended. Okay. And some damage done in different circles because of uh, some pretty extreme ideas surrounding dating and judging other people who were dating and things like that. Okay. Um, Whoa, whoa, so, you mean somebody misrepresented some of the truths that are in his book? I, I think and, so. I mean, and that's and, and, oh, no one does that with the Bible. Good thing. <laughs> yeah, good thing. No, of course, this happens with the Bible. It happens all the time. So, so we've got this guy, Josh Harris, who wrote this book, what, in the 90s? Yeah, toward, uh, I believe it was the end of the 90s. And it... Uh, Made a big splash, and but in just in the last week or so, uh, Josh Harris has hit the world with the news that one, he's getting a divorce from his wife of about 20 years, and two, that he no longer wears the name Christian. Um, he has denounced his faith and wow. has fallen, and it um, has created quite a stir. I mean, even like Newsweek and CNN have written articles on this public figure. Um, who has renounced Christ. And so one of the questions I've heard people talking about, some people on Facebook, some people I've talked with, kind of what, what do we do when uh, someone influential like this, someone who professes Christ, uh, then turns their back and walks away, even from things that you know they've been very influential in. Um, this guy kind of came to stand for the, the purity movement for a lot of people. And now here he is getting divorced and uh, turning his back on Christ. So what are some lessons that we can take from that is kind of what uh, we want, the question we want to ask today and and open that up. So I guess our our whole webcast today is not going to be about Josh Harris, but just to get a sense of what can happen, how far people can move in their thinking. He goes from writing a book, talking about, living, uh, conducting yourself in a chaste way according to biblical principles, now rejecting faith in Jesus, and and even what are some of the other things where he's ended up now? What's he saying? Is he rejecting those principles that he wants to tell? Well, to some extent. Now, what's happened, unfortunately, is that because some people have kind of run in a different direction with some of the concepts from his book, he's released some public statements before he uh, he went the direction he's gone, uh, basically re- recanting some of the ideas in his book, um, trying to clarify some of those things. Um, but ultimately, he has said, by all of the ways I know to measure a Christian, I'm no longer a Christian. Okay. All right. And, and, and so what are some of the things that we want to talk about? What You were talking about reactions to this that you're seeing amongst your peers on Facebook and this kind of thing. Um, where do we want to go with this? You know, I think one of the first things is just to acknowledge that there's going to be times where there are people um, in the broader culture or even closer to us um, who have a tremendous amount of impact on our spiritual lives, and we end up putting a lot of trust in them, and we come to look up to them, to take their advice, and the way that they go influences the way that we go. 
And when someone like this guy who has a lot of influence through his writing turns his back on Christ, that can have a big impact on a lot of people. Yeah. But biblically speaking, we need to be very careful while we appreciate each other and benefit tremendously from each other to make sure our faith is in God, our faith is in Christ, and not infallible people who can and sometimes do fall, uh, oh, they reject Christ, turn their back on him. One of the passages that has helped me with this is in Romans chapter 3, um, where Paul is in the midst of discussion on the sinfulness of the Jewish people, uh, how all have sinned, uh, but in particular the Jews who had God's revelation had sinned. And that in some ways reflected poorly on God in some people's view and thinking, oh, well, here's these people who had all these advantages and now they've, you know, most of them have not accepted Christ. But look at what he says here in Romans 3 verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And then I think is this a bedrock principle we have to keep in mind in this situation and other situations where someone that we've looked up to turns out that they're faithless. Mm -hmm. God is not faithless. God is still faithful. And we have to keep coming back and putting our trust in God and not falling along with those people. Yeah, in the Old Testament, uh, God's people could do great damage. They could profane the name of God and cause God's name to be blasphemed when they were faithless and, and turned to idols and ended up being conquered and carried away into captivity. That didn't mean that God was faithless. It, it means that those people um, turned away from God, and, and yet they could cause people to stumble. They could say, well, what kind of God do they have? But the problem wasn't God. The problem was those people. And, and, you know, the same thing is true today. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, Paul spends quite a bit of time warning the Corinthians not to put their confidence in men or in the wisdom of men. And then you might think about, well, Paul himself, wasn't he influential? And weren't they supposed to be imitators of him as he was imitator, an imitator of Christ, as he says later on in 1 Corinthians 11? But in 1 Corinthians 1, we can just read a little bit of this. Let me get my Bible there. Um, Paul says in verse 12, Now this I mean that each one of you says, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. One problem is they're dividing as they follow these different men. And so Paul asks, is Christ divided? But then he also says, was Paul crucified for you? Uh, or were you baptized into the name of Paul? And so when we have the benefit of someone's good influence, our, our, we have to remember that person is not the one who was crucified for me. I'm not a follower of that person. He may be pointing me to Christ. If he falls away from Christ, that doesn't mean I have to go away from Christ. My faith needs to be in Christ. Yeah, exactly right. And I mean, this, is, this really hits close to home, I think, for a lot of us. I can think of two people in my life who were tremendously influential on me. Um, and one of them older, one of them younger, and the the younger one has now completely fallen away, um, has left his wife, has turned his back on the Lord, and is walking in sin mm -hmm. openly. And and that when I remember hearing about that and just being almost speechless, like from my perspective, I had seen no warning signs, I had seen no, you know, downward slope, and that that 
that was a blow to me. But that doesn't shake my faith in the Lord. Okay, that was my question. Was it a blow in the sense that you began to think, hmm, maybe maybe all these things that he and I both believed in aren't true, or was it a blow to you in some other sense? It, for me, at least, it was an, an mainly another sense that, wow, you know, someone like this that I thought was so strong that had encouraged me on so many occasions is now totally gone from the but faith. But if, if you had been an admirer of him to the point that, your faith was because he believed, then when he turns away, that could destroy you. That's right. That's right. And, and that is something that we're all prone to. Um, and we have to really watch out for that. Um, Cassandra just come in with a comment and says, uh, the problem is people don't know the Bible for themselves. Unfortunately, there are many wolves within Christ's church, but the Bible does warn us about that. Matthew seven fifteen through 23. That's absolutely right, Cassandra. Jesus warns at the end of the Sermon on the Mount to beware of, of false teachers. Let's read that passage there from Matthew 7 that you referenced. Someone got that for us, Matthew 7. Um, she references verses 15 through 23. Yeah, I got uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm there now. Right. Matthew chapter 7, starting verse 15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. All right, so there's your there's your your people who can be influential and can seem to be leading people to Christ, but they're leading people away. And there's the warning by their fruits. You shall know them. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? So you can look at the fruits and see the indication of error. And I'm going to skip down to verse 21. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my father who is in heaven. And so, so there's a connection made here between people who are, are doing the will of the Father um, and and appear to be Christians, and those who are not doing the will of the Father, but but leave the impression in their words that they are followers of Christ, and that can be dangerous. But here's the thing about Cassandra's question or comment. She says, uh, people don't know the Bible for themselves. So what, what does that point to? I think the answer is obvious. What's the solution? Know the Bible. Learn. Yeah. We need, if, if, if I find that I've been so profoundly influenced by somebody that I'm a believer in Jesus, even though I don't know the Bible, I better start studying the Bible so my faith is, is in what Jesus has said and not what Joe Schmo has told me Jesus has said. That's well, right. I'm very thankful for the gentleman that taught me the, the scriptures many years ago. One of the first things he said to me, I mentioned this to you guys earlier, one of the first things he said to me was, don't believe because of me. And what I can do, I'm a, I'm a man that can fall away. Your faith needs to be in Jesus Christ. And he, he really emphasized very often, read and study the scriptures for yourself and know it. Don't trust your, put your faith and trust in someone else. And that, that's been with me a long time, still with me. And I do share that with others that I'm studying with as well. Don't put your faith in me. Lori yeah. Biesecker says, um, the one who leaves the Lord, it can be even more faith-shaking if the one who leaves the Lord was in a role of mentoring or parenting or similar in a person's life. An equal peer's failure to remain faithful is less likely to cause another to question his own faith. And, and that's true. Somebody you look up to, someone who mentored you. What we're saying here is people do have influence, and God means for people to have influence, but this should be a, a warning to us if we, if we aspire to be influential, and all of us should in one way or another, 
but if we aspire to be influential, then we'd better think about the responsibility we're taking on because we are going to be influential one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And uh, we need to think about the fact that uh, we're going to give account not only for how we ourselves live, but, but whether we place stumbling blocks in the paths of others. That's right. Uh, we had another viewer uh, with a, a comment here that says, I'm not familiar with this story, but at least he's checking himself against a standard, saying, according to the standard, I'm not a Christian, and not saying, I can do all these wrong things and still be a Christian. Uh, maybe there's hope in that. He hasn't given up on the standard, from what I understand. And, and I've actually seen some articles to that effect in in this case, is he's um, come out as being supportive of the LGBT agenda and some other things, but it's helpful that he's making a distinction. I'm now getting a divorce from my wife. I'm coming out in favor of these ungodly things, and I'm no longer a Christian. Because um, one of the big dangers that's happening right now is that people are trying to have a foot in both worlds. And sometimes it is helpful when somebody rejects Christ, just, just to make that clear, that they're not trying to reject Christ's standards, but hold on to Christ. I've seen way too many examples of people trying to do that. All four of us sitting here, all four of us try to influence other people. We try to teach people the gospel, and we baptize people into Christ. And when we do, we often uh, we, we continue to have Bible studies with them to teach them God's way. We advise them. We counsel them. We talk to them about their friendships. And all of that is important because they don't know how to apply all of God's word, and we can see dangers in their lives that could quickly snuff out their newfound faith uh, that they may not be aware of. And so we're trying to help them avoid those pitfalls. But we also need to, Drew, as you were saying, the fellow who taught you, saying, don't put your faith in me. We need to be moving those people into a more profound understanding of God's word for themselves so that they are not dependent on us. And I'll contrast two people. Um, in the Old Testament, in Second Chronicles chapter 23, you had young Joash, uh, who is raised by his aunt and uncle, uh, Jehosh, uh, let's see, her name was, his name was Jehoiada, and right now, all of a sudden, I can't think of her name. I wanted to say Jehoshabeth. That wasn't it, was it? Well, I can't think of his aunt's name right now, but in any event, um, Jehoiada mentored him, and he becomes king. And it says in Second Chronicles 24, verse 2, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And then you get down in the chapter, and Jehoiada dies. And the next thing you know, uh, young Joash, who's now a young adult, uh, turns away from the Lord and uh, actually um, has his cousin, whom he'd been raised with like a brother, put to death because his cousin rebuked him uh, for, his, for his, uh, his error. So what you had there was somebody who was mentored by a godly man, mentored by Jehoiada, and he was faithful outwardly as long as Jehoiada lived. And then when Jehoiada was gone, he wasn't faithful anymore. On the other hand, you have Elijah. And you have Elijah who believes only he is left who is serving the Lord, that everybody else has bowed the knee to Baal. And so here's a man who is willing to continue to serve the Lord even when he believes he's the only one. Everybody else is gone. Yeah. So that's the question. Which am I? And when I have influence with other people, which do I want them to be? Do I want them to be like Jehoiada so, or like Joash? So that when I'm gone, well, that's it. 
or do I want them to be like Elijah so that no matter what happens to me, no matter what I choose, they're going to serve the Lord? Lori put in a comment that relates to exactly what you're saying. She says, also, many, many people are looking for a guru, which is dangerous for both guru seeker and the guru. But then they put their faith in the guru. Yeah. And also then the second comment is it's so important for teachers of God's word not to begin to think of themselves or allow others to put them on a guru pedestal. Right? Now that's Yeah, good. that's absolutely right. And that's right to Jeff's point that he just made is that uh, from a teaching standpoint, we have to be so careful not to make people dependent on us, but teach them to be dependent on the Lord. And from a guru seeker standpoint, we just have to be really careful that there's no one person who's going to have it all or be able to fill that role of complete wisdom. Uh, we have to check everything against God's word. I think about the Bereans, you know, they had the apostle Paul right there with them and they still went to the scriptures and checked them uh, daily to see that these things were so. Well, I think the, 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 the issue is complicated in our culture in our day too, because the movement is to go towards sin. And yet I think one of you were mentioning it, that we still want some kind of a connection with Christ or God but still have the freedom to live the way I want to live. And so you're seeing people embracing both and trying to combine it together. And there's a lot of evangelical uh, movement to accept sin in a public way and still have some relationship with Christ. Isn't that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And once people see a public figure uh, who is lauded as a Bible teacher do something like that, boy, it, it creates that guru relationship real quick because people can kind of justify their behavior if they can find someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus trying to ride that line between, well, I can have this sin and still be a Christian. Um, there's a tremendous amount of social power in that uh, and that people can can get a following when they try to do that. Well, maybe then kind of moving to the second thing I think we want to talk about, could, could it be that people will look at this experience of Josh Harris and say, ah, clearly those early views of his were dangerous and extreme. The idea that you should be chased in your dating relationship, that just leads you to, to uh, fall away from any kind of faith in Christ. So that was extreme and ultra conservative and unnecessary. Is that, is that what we should take away from this? Right. I mean, that, that is, I mean, there's a lot of people, a lot of atheists having a heyday with this, as with any public person who confesses Jesus, uh, you know, renouncing that, um, that, that everybody wants to make him the, the poster child. Um, and, and really what ends up happening is like you mentioned, you, they throw out the baby with the bathwater. And say, because this person has renounced their faith, well, now everything that they taught, regardless of whether it was right or wrong, must be thrown out along with them. Um, and that's just not the case. Uh, we have to keep coming back to Scripture. And again, in the parts of uh, his writings that, that I read, he had some very biblical, very helpful things to say about the importance of saving oneself from marriage, which is absolutely what God tells us to do, um, is that... Uh, you know, the sexual relationship was reserved for marriage and he was upholding that standard uh, just because he's fallen doesn't mean that uh, we reject God's word on that or we somehow change our standard. In other words, uh, it wasn't true because he said it. It was true because God's word says it. 
bottom. That's and right. So then when he turns away, that, that doesn't undermine the truth of what God has said. Exactly. And that's one thing that's so important to, to draw a line between, uh, you know, somebody writes a really helpful book of some kind. And probably almost every book that people have written, there's going to be some good things, some bad things, <laughs> and some things. Uh, and we have to learn to distinguish between the things and figure out, okay, well, the good things are good. Why, why are they good? Because they align with God's word. Why are the bad things bad? Well, because they've gone beyond God's word, they teach something contrary to God's word. And with situations like this, where someone has now renounced their faith in Christ and departed, um, we have to hold to the things that are good because those things are still good. They've turned their back on the whole thing. Um, and we have to recognize, okay, well, they had some bad ideas in there as well. And we need to have rejected those, even if they had kept their faith. Um, the, 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 the faith or the position of the teacher does not, should not totally change our view on what they taught. Excuse me. I got tickled. Not everybody will know what was going on, but there's a famous parody sermon, a somewhat famous parody sermon, uh, that, that, uh, Stephen was borrowing some language from. And, and I sometimes hear Stephen doing it in another voice and I could hear that coming. <laughs> so, but there, that's right. You, you, anything that a man writes, uh, it may be very good, may be very helpful, but we have to always sift it and see what is, what is, well, you, you think of Paul going to uh, Berea in Acts chapter 17, and the people are impressed with him enough that he has their attention. They're listening. However, they're going to sift what he's saying by comparing it with the word of God. And these people are commended. They're contrasted with the Jews of, of Thessalonica, uh, because they did this. So this is in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. Now these, these Jews in the synagogue in Berea, were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, examining the scriptures daily, whether these things were so. So they're listening to what Paul says. They have, he has their attention. They, 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 wow, what's, they're going to look into it, but they're going to sift it by what they know is God's word. Yeah, and say, I think. Before, right, yeah, sorry. In that verse that you're reading, didn't Paul do or have miraculous powers? Yes. Did, confirming the word. Yes. But yet, in spite of the miraculous powers that they were seeing and doing, confirming the word, which would have been the word of the new covenant, they're still going back to the scriptures that even confirm it further. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's an interesting example in the next chapter. We see Apollos. Uh, speaking boldly at Ephesus. He's eloquent, competent in the scriptures, and he's fervent in spirit, and he talks, he's teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, but he only knew the baptism of John. And then interestingly, in the very next chapter, Paul comes to Ephesus a bit later, finds 12 guys who, lo and behold, they've been baptized, but only with John's baptism. I think we're supposed to connect these things and see, Apollos was a good guy. Yeah. He had so many things right but he missed it on baptism. Right. And even though he was a good guy and meant well, that didn't prevent him from doing damage to these guys. Now, to Apollos' credit, when Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside, from everything we can tell, he was correctable. He was teachable. And so he changed and said, yeah, okay, they need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. 
Now, these 12 guys, I think it would be interesting. You know, they could have said, uh, I don't know, Paul. Apollos is a lot better speaker than you are. And he told us that John's the Baptist baptism, that, that's good enough. And, you know, if it's good enough for Apollos, it's good enough for us. I think you're being extreme on this, you know, and they don't, they don't put up that kind of a fight. Right. They don't think, well, that's not the way we heard it preached. <laughs> that's that, right. The preacher who taught us, he didn't preach it that way. <laughs> so. Yeah. And that's, what's so important is in both of these cases, the teacher and those who were taught were both correctable when confronted with the truth. Yeah. And that's the attitude that we've got to seek to foster is that even when someone influential turns out they weren't teaching everything right. Well, hopefully they're receptive to correction if someone corrects them on it. And we've got to be receptive to correction when someone corrects us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We'll get to that next, that last point there you were going to bring up, Stephen, um, about the, what is it, spirit, spirituality without religion. And that's yeah. where our culture is going. We'll get there in just a minute, because I, I do just want to come back to uh, something that's particularly relevant to Josh Harris, is this, we live in a culture in which sexual freedom is kind of the greatest good, the greatest cause, and so many people, so much of what's going on in our culture is revolving around this idea of people should be able to do whatever they want, mm -hmm. particularly with regard to sexuality and, and things like that. And we just have to be so careful to hold to the standards that Jesus has set and that are set up for us in God's word, because there's a lot of compromise going on. And when things like this happen, where someone who has held to at least partially a biblical view uh, of sexuality and chastity and purity, when someone like that goes down, People are tempted to say, ah, well, you know, like Jeff, you were mentioning earlier, well, if this person's gone down, it just shows that this, this standard is not worth holding to. Now, maybe there were some standards that he proposed that are not biblical and aren't worth holding to, but there were some of the things that he proposed that absolutely were worth holding to. Um, it's worth it to keep yourself and to wait until you're married to be with somebody sexually. It's worth it to be very careful in your dating relationships in uh, your personal relationships to stay above board, to be very careful, to have accountability, um, and to take those relationships very seriously. I think one of Josh Harris's main points in his book was that this whole casual dating thing of just, I don't really want to marry you, but I'm just going to date people to date people, that, that idea can do a lot of damage and has done a lot of damage in our culture. And so coming back to this idea of chastity, of purity, of sexual integrity, uh, that is something that Jesus taught on, and that's something that our culture is not hearing. And we have to be people who, both in our example and in our teaching, are faithfully holding to the standards that Jesus set on that. It was radical when Jesus said it. It's radical today when someone repeats what he said. Right. That's absolutely right. And just as an example of those things, let's look at Matthew chapter 5, um, because regardless of the other artificial lines that people may draw about sexual sin, Jesus draws the line way back um, and says that you were not to lust uh, after another. In Matthew chapter five and verse 27 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And, I, and again, that would have been, like you mentioned, Drew, shocking for Jesus' audience. It's shocking for our culture today that just treats lust as if it's nothing at all. And so if we hold to God's standards, uh, it's going to be something shocking to a lot of people, but we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. When people fail to hold to God's standards, it doesn't mean the standards are wrong. It's interesting. Um, in, in the case of Josh Harris, he still, he, he became a pastor in some, some kind of church. Now he's not, but is he still religious in some way? You know, that's an interesting question. In his Instagram post last week, he, you know, he talked about that some are experimenting with practicing faith kind of outside of Christianity. And he didn't say that he's ready for that yet, but his post almost seems to indicate that he is still having some kind of faith in something, but it's kind of this postmodern thing that so many people are getting into these days of kind of being spiritual without being religious. Now he didn't use that terminology, but we can see that kind of all around us is people like the idea of having some kind of higher power, but it's not exactly Jesus. Maybe Jesus is part of a bigger spiritual something. And they like to take little bits from different religions and kind of mix, have this, their own little smorgasbord of spiritual things and they mix philosophies and ideas. But the idea is, well, none of these can be absolutely true, so we just have to kind of take the good where we find it. And there's a kind of a big push against organized religion, as people are just wanting to be privately spiritual with their own ideas and concepts. And if you go very far down that road, it all kind of falls apart. Um, but it seems like, and I don't know what direction he may be headed, but that Josh Harris may have headed down a road somewhat like that. Yeah, and so people see some value in in something beyond themselves uh, that they associate with faith. It's not really a faith in a biblical sense, but the way the world uses the word faith, having some kind of spirituality, some kind of faith, but it gets divorced from the revealed word of God, from the Bible. It gets divorced from the God of the Bible. In an extreme, there was this story a week ago in the Atlantic, uh, where uh, the title of the article was they tried to start a church without God. And then the rest of the title is for a while it worked. Um, this is about congregations, churches for atheists, churches for people who hmm. believe there's no God. And uh, they, they ended up with uh, oh, a significant number of congregations around. Um, in 2012, 2013, this got started. But since that time, it's dwindled. They've lost a third of their members and a third of their congregations. Why is that? Why would you, if you get something started like that, and there's a lot of hoopla about it, oh, we've got this new thing, this church is without God, why would it flounder? Well, you know, it's interesting. They, they mentioned a little bit later in the article that it's really hard to hold to something just based on disinterest. If you try to get a bunch of people together who are like, okay, who all is not interested in God? Okay, let's all get together and rally around this idea of we're not interested in God and his standards. Well, 
being disinterested in something. Oh yeah, there you go. You got the quote from the, from the article. Being uninterested in something is about the least effective social glue, the dullest possible mobilizing cry, the weakest affinity principle that one can imagine. Yeah, so let's, hey, let's all get excited about not being interested in God. <laughs> and it turns out that doesn't hold people together very well. And is anybody really surprised? And again, when you take something like religion, that the whole premise is the idea of we're rallying around something that we believe to be a transcendent truth. We believe that God is real. He created us. He is the one who has the right to tell us what to do. So we hold to a standard. We make sacrifices for him because we believe that his ways are better than our ways. But we take that standard out. We take that central idea out. Well, of course, it's going to fall apart. Um, you might have some people who enjoy doing social things together, but you can have that without having, you know, any central thing. And, and so when you take the central idea of this quote unquote church out, it's not surprising that it's fallen apart. It takes, it requires motivation. What motivates one to serve whatever it is you want to serve? Well, the Bible teaches us about what, what the uh, advantages of serving God. We're, we're talking about, um, eternal life, a living beyond this grave. Now, that's quite motivational, um, requires study and understanding it. But if you remove something that's outside of ourselves and just do it internally, everyone's going to have different likes, different motivations, and, and, and different results. It's, I don't see how that could hold up either. Right. And the thing is, and this is a, just a key point about this idea of almost deconversion or, or losing faith in Christ. If you, if you reject a higher standard, if you reject faith in God, you are still going to have some kind of standard and you are still going to have faith in something. Um, we're, we're programmed for that. And just because you've swapped standards doesn't mean that, oh, you're now free and like you can do whatever you want there are consequences to this kind of thinking. I mean, I think about in Josh Harris's um, Instagram post, he also included a pretty lengthy apology uh, to the LGBT community um, for his teachings. And essentially in his post affirmed that, you know, same sex marriage should be equal and all of these things. And what's interesting to me is that in his recanting of his faith, you simultaneously see what I really think is a kind of a bowing down to the culture. Um, he's swapped the standards of God, but he's now accepted the standards of the culture around us, which is changing at a pretty alarming rate. And what he's really accepting is the standards of his own personal preferences. I mean, I don't want to get too personal about Josh Harris. I don't know the man, but in general, there's this tendency to think it's arrogant of me to say there's one right way. There's one standard that applies to everything. It's less arrogant and more uh, hum humble to say everybody could be right. But, but then I have my own personal standards and what I'm really doing while I tell myself I'm being less arrogant, what I'm really doing is supposing that somehow I can come up with a standard that is of more value than a standard that has been revealed from God. And so in, in, the, in the article in The Atlantic about churches without God, there was a, uh, a description of a young woman who had grown up going to church, and she lost her faith. And here's the paragraph. By the time she turned up in New York, her faith had long since unraveled. A casualty of overseas travel that made her question how any one religious community 
could have a monopoly on truth. I think there are a lot of us that at some point have it go through our heads, isn't it presumptuous of me to think that I'm right and everybody else who thinks something different is wrong? Isn't that arrogant of me? I think that's something that occurs to a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I know I've had that thought before. And, and so then you think about that and you think, well, what if you had this guy over here and he's imagining this is truth and this guy, well, I think this is truth. And these guys are thinking, I think this is truth and so on. Well, it would be rather arrogant of any one of those to say, I just thought about this and I decided this is truth. And so I'm going to say that should be truth for everybody. That would be arrogant, wouldn't it? Presumptuously so, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's not what we have. What we have is this, something that has literally been handed down from on high. We have a truth revealed to us from the one who made us. And going back to the passage in Romans 3, if everybody's faithless, that doesn't mean God is. His truth is still truth. And if I come to an understanding, if I have the humility to accept what God has said, rather than to just say, well, I feel like I'd like to live this way, so that's my truth, that's really arrogance. If I have the humility to say, I want to live according to what God, who made me, has said, it doesn't really matter what anybody else says and how many other people don't believe that. I have to hold to that. That's not arrogance. That's humility. Yeah, that's right. And it is something that as we talk with people who have ideas different from our own, who also claim to believe in God and want to follow his ways, we need to engage with humility, realizing that we could be wrong, realizing that, you know, we need to be teachable. We need to be correctable. All of us are prone to failure and being short-sighted. But at the same time, what our culture has done is essentially in postmodernism is just to say that there is no such thing as truth. No ideas are better than other ideas. And and that erodes the foundation. Of course, if someone says, well, there's no such thing as absolute truth, the the question to ask them, exactly, is that true? Postmodernism is self-defeating at its core. If you take that to its logical end, um, it doesn't work. And there's a difference between having the humility to say, I could be wrong, but then not taking it so far as to say, well, if I could be wrong, everybody could be wrong, and there's no such thing as absolute truth. That's a self-defeating philosophy. If there is no God, why would anybody want a standard then? Why is there a need for a standard? And that's, that's really where it starts. We're in an age where people have bought into the idea that, that we are here by chance. We're not here as a result of, of a, a divine choice or creation. Maybe they have some vague idea of God having had some kind of connection with what goes on here on earth, but not a God who really interacts with us and speaks to us. And they really believe in, in ideas that have resulted from Darwin, Darwin's ideas, that we're, we're kind of here by chance, having evolved by chance. And so then I just look to myself and my feelings, and that's going to be my standard. Mm -hmm. So what molecule evolved into morality? Yeah, Yeah, we had another uh, viewer comment before we wrap up here. Uh, Ben comments, also for those of us that grow up in the church, sometimes I think, quote, what are the odds I happen to grow up learning the only true way while so many others are going on the wrong path? Thanks for the good discussion. And yeah, I think that's right, is it's easy... Um, for those who are holding to truth, but maybe in a minority to, to question that. 
this, and this is one of the, their advantages to being raised with Christian parents, parents, but this is an advantage to being raised, I'm not, I'm not advocating being raised without Christian parents, but, but if you were, if you grew up in a family where your parents were not Christians, or they had, they professed to be Christians, but they followed some doctrine of men, and you uh, came to an understanding of God's word and became a believer, you have demonstrated to yourself that you have that character to choose truth over your own culture, truth over your own upbringing, truth uh, over what you thought. And for those of us who had the advantage of having Christians as parents, parents who were Christians, who brought us along in God's word from the very beginning, we need to constantly ask ourselves that. Am I willing to accept what I see in God's word, even if it's different than how I was raised? Amen. Yeah, that's exactly right. And really, that's what uh, all of this, I think, comes back to is we want to search for truth. We really want to honestly realize, you know, any of us could fall away. Uh, any of us could turn our back on Christ, but all of us are accountable to God's standard. Um, he's the one who's made us and he's the one who, who loves us, who has sacrificed his own son for us. And we need to devote ourselves to him and cling to him with everything we got. Amen. And that's a good note to end on. We are past our time looking at the clock. I want to thank you, uh, Stephen, for bringing this topic to the table. It's very good. Both of you guys, excellent conversation. We thank you, everyone in the audience, who has given us their questions and comments. We encourage that every time we meet. And without any further ado, is there anything else, guys, you want to say? No, thanks, guys. And we'll see you next time.